How are you this morning? Good. I'm glad you're here. It's good to see everybody. We want to welcome you. Did you come to Sunday school this morning and have a good time in Sunday school? That's always exciting. We're always glad for that. All right. We're glad you're here. And this is an important part of our worship service. And when we get through here, you can go to a special children's worship with Miss Sabina if you'd like to. My happy club friend, um, James Morris, I think, has the happy club bag. Let's see what he brought today. It's light. Let me see what this is. What is this? It's a baseball. Do you like baseball? You know what? uh, The baseball season for the Atlanta Braves have just started. Y'all watch the Atlanta Braves? No? Okay. (laughs) I bet some parents and grandparents do. Do you like baseball, James? What's your favorite? Do you like to play a certain position or what do you do? What's your favorite part? He's not sure. I think he likes it all. But he brought a baseball. It's kind of like a baseball. It's, it's soft and it's blue. It's a smushy ball, but it's, it's a safe one to use for, for you know, for when we're small. And then as we get bigger, these balls will probably get bigger and, and harder too and more dangerous. So you be careful when you play baseball. But, but James, what I know about baseball is that when I watch it on TV and those guys are so good, do you think they're that good automatically? Do you think they just are born good? You do. Okay. Well, sometimes they are, but you know what? A lot of times it takes a lot of practice to be good at something, doesn't it? So when you see people playing baseball in a game, you know there are hours of practice behind it. And that kind of reminds me of the way it is in the Christian life, boys and girls. When we come in here to worship, we should come in prepared and ready by all the practice we've done all week. When we're home, we practice when we read the Bible and when we pray. And when we tell others about Jesus and when we give him an offering, all that is practice. And that's an act of worship. So when we come in here on Sunday morning, we can give him our very best. I know James likes baseball and it's fun to watch. And I like watching the Braves and I I pull for them every year. But I know those guys that are out there on that field playing, they have practiced a long time to be that good at it. And that's what we need to do when we come in church too. So let's... Let's practice right now by saying a prayer and asking God to help us grow and be better Christians. Let's bow together. Dear Father, you pray with me. Dear God, help us to love you and to worship you and to serve you and to grow in our love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. There's your baseball. Thank you for bringing it, James. Miss Sabina, it's a girl's turn, isn't it? Yes. Where's Macy? Will you, will you take the bag home and bring something special back next week, please? Okay. Thank you. Boys and girls, you can go with Miss Sabina to children's worship if you'd like to.
Secretary. I really have a uh, desire for you to understand the words of the hymns that we sing, and we're about to sing a hymn that has a strange word in it. We sing, Here I Raise Mine Ebenezer, and so many people do not know what an Ebenezer is. Uh, why are we singing those words? Literally, the word Ebenezer means rock of help. And in 1 Samuel seven twelve, Samuel wrote, He took a single rock, and he set it upright between Mizpah and Shen, and he named the rock Ebenezer, rock of help, saying, This marks the place where God helped us. Literally, what you're saying when you sing, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, is I'm raising a rock, a memorial, at this place to say, this is where God has brought me. Where has God brought you? Is this a place where you today can set a memorial and remember forever what God has done for you? We please stand as we sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me come to you today, first of all, acknowledging that you are our creator, that you are our provider, and we just thank you for your love, mercy, and grace that you've shown us in ways we can't even describe. We also acknowledge that that we have sinned and fallen short of, of what you desire from us this week, and we ask your forgiveness for those sins. We thank you for the opportunity that we had to, to gather as a community and worship over the weekend, and, and we just thank you uh, that you have drawn so many people closer to yourself. We ask you now to take these tithes and offerings and, and bless them to the ongoing of your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you, choir. Very worshipful. We're in a series during the season of Lent leading up to Easter on the signs in John's gospel. There are seven signs in what's called the book of signs, chapters 2 through 12 of John. And each of the signs is designed to indicate an aspect of Jesus. A lot of folks look at the miracles and wonders and focus on them, but John wants us to look at the person producing the miracle. He wants us to look at Jesus and what that miracle or wonder has to say about him. This is the fifth sign. The fourth sign was feeding the 5,000, which is at the beginning of chapter 6. And following on the heels of that is the fifth sign. It's in chapter 6, verses 15 through 21. Right after he feeds the 5,000, verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea rose because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened, but he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Shall we pray? Father, take the truths of this passage and instill them in our hearts. So that when we face storms and waves are washing over the boat and we are about to sink, we can be assured of your presence with us and the hope and the security and the strength that that offers. God, we need you now more than ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everyone who lives in this world faces some kind of storm or other at some point in their lives. The storm may come at different forms. It may affect us in different ways, but each storm contains some common elements. Most storms usually come on suddenly and unexpectedly. They take us by surprise and fill us with fear. They test our faith and hopefully they will cause us to turn to God and cry out to Him. And if we learn in the small storms to turn to God by faith, then those small storms can become building blocks that God can use to prepare us for the larger storms that are headed down our path. Now, if we didn't have the smaller storms and all of a sudden we were confronted with a large one, can you imagine how how that would make us feel. We would be completely undone. But Jesus uses the smaller storms to prepare us. And and maybe you're in a smaller storm now, or, or maybe you're in a large one, and you can look back on the smaller ones and how God has been preparing you all the all the while. Let's think for a moment about what some of those storms might be. You might be facing the storm of illness, sudden or prolonged. Maybe the storm of death of a of a loved one. Maybe the storm of rejection caused by divorce or separation or abandonment. 
Maybe the storm of unjust criticism or the storm of some emotional trauma like an anger or or hatred or bitterness taking root in your heart. Maybe the storm of some loss like your home or job or security. Maybe the storm of an accident, something that happens suddenly that changes the whole course of your life in an instant. Those, those storms may take different forms and sizes and shapes, but one thing I know for sure, being a Christian does not exempt you from the storms of life. If it did, then everyone would be a follower of Jesus for the wrong reason. After all, people would follow Jesus for the miracles he could do for us, and that is the one thing that he did not want to happen. That's why in this passage... He leaves the crowd who comes and wants to crown him king after the the sign, the fourth sign of feeding the 5,000. And he goes up to a mountain alone. And I can just see a a few people straggling along behind him saying, Jesus, do this for me. Hey, I just saw you feed 5,000 with a few loaves and fish. I need a miracle too. But Jesus never wanted a following for what he could do. He wanted people to believe in him for who he was. And to assure you that being in a storm is not rare, even Jesus' disciples found themselves in the midst of one. And there's an outline in your worship bulletin, because I think what happened to them can be instructive for what happens to us. So let's take a look at it. First of all, I want you to see that you can be obedient to God and still find yourself in a storm. The disciples were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. And Matthew's version of feeding the 5,000 comes in uh, chapter 14, verses 22 through 27. Jesus commands the disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side of the sea. And he wanted to depart from the crowds who only wanted a miracle worker. And Jesus sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee to the western shore of Capernaum. So I want you to notice here that disciples are not being disobedient to God. They are not trying to do something their own way. They were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, and still a storm arose. Now how do you explain this? A lot of folks find that difficult to understand. Isn't Jesus supposed to protect us from the storms of life? Aren't we told in Matthew 10 verses 29 and 30 that not one sparrow falls to the ground that is apart from the Father's will, and He loves us so much that even the very number of uh, number, the hairs of our head are numbered. If He cares that much about us, and if He has that much power, then why did He send His disciples into the storm? Well, this may sound crazy, but I think one reason Jesus sent them into the storm was to protect them. You ever thought about that? Sometimes Jesus sends us into a storm to protect us from something far worse. Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The desire of the crowds to make him king was not a temptation to Jesus. Remember, he had already faced that temptation In the wilderness, after being there for 40 days, Satan came to him and and said, you can be king of all that you can see. Well, Jesus already knew he was king. He was a Messiah. 
but not the kind that the Jews were looking for. They were looking for a, a military Messiah who would lead them into victory over Rome, their oppressors. But Jesus wanted to be, he came to be a spiritual Messiah who would lead anyone who was willing to follow him into victory over sin. Jesus often spoke of his kingdom. He called it the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that was not of this world. But Jesus also knew that as these crowds came and pressed upon him and and were tempted to make him king, that that could become a huge problem to his disciples. After all, here's Jesus at the height of his success, and the disciples see these huge crowds accumulating around their master, and they see miracles of healing and feeding the multitude, and now this crowd is gathering, and they want to crown their leader as king. These disciples were simply not spiritually mature enough at this point to understand, to distinguish between heavenly success and worldly success. And so Jesus sends them away in a boat and he disperses the crowd and he goes up onto a mountain to pray. So the disciples were being obedient to Jesus and still the storm came. And I want you to understand what kind of storm it was. It was no small squall. The Sea of Galilee, I got out my my ruler and my map, it's about... 10 miles wide and about 14 miles long. It's surrounded by hills and mountains are right behind it. And deep deep rifts are cut through the hills and high winds often rush through those, those rifts onto the sea. And as the air at sea level heats up, it rises swiftly and cold air swooping down from the mountains flows through these cuts into a swirling cauldron over the sea. And these storms come up unexpectedly and they had been rowing against the wind for several hours and were still in the middle of it and only about three and a half miles from shore so they aren't even halfway yet and you have to remember at least four of these disciples were experienced fishermen Peter and Andrew James and John you remember Jesus came and called them while they were still cleaning their nets they had been fishing these waters their entire lives they knew all the tricks of the trade, including the handling of a boat just like this one. And they were familiar with how storms could suddenly rise on the sea, and yet they were afraid for their very lives. While they were struggling, what was Jesus doing? Didn't he care? Of course. While the storm was raging, Jesus was up on the mountain praying. He may have been wrestling with the desire of the crowds to make him king. He may have been considering his destiny on the cross, but I'm sure he was also aware of and praying for his disciples in that boat. And that should tell us something about the trials we face. Trials, though not enjoyable at the time, serve a worthwhile purpose in our lives. Not all of our testing is earth-shattering or life-changing, but A lot of our difficulties may be small and annoying, but if we can just learn to trust Jesus in these times of distractions, it will strengthen our faith in our daily living. I was going through a hard time a few years ago, and somebody came and gave me a passage of Scripture from Romans 5, and I keep going back to these verses fairly often. Verse 3 of Romans 5 says that, 
More than this, we rejoice in our sufferings. Can you imagine that? Rejoicing in our sufferings? Knowing, here's the sequence. The suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. We rejoice in our sufferings. So trials and temptations and storms can be used by God to teach us to depend on Him. Trials teach others, and sometimes even ourselves, that we have more faith than we realized. And the Christian life is is passed from one person to another, from one life to another, from one generation to another. As others see in you an example of steadfastness and trust in Jesus that they desire for themselves. Did you hear me on that? When you are going through a difficult time, people are watching you. And when they see in you a life of trust and steadfastness and dependence on God that they lack in their own lives... That's how the Christian faith is communicated from one generation to the next. And even though Jesus may seem to be absent as he did here with his disciples at first, he's really not that far away and he is praying for you the entire time. And it says in verse 20, It is I, do not be afraid. They are struggling with the oars, near exhaustion after hours of effort. And Jesus comes to them walking on the water, and and believing in this miracle requires what we call a suspension of the laws of nature. In thinking about this fifth sign, we need to remember that Jesus was with God when he created the heavens and the earth. And it's no more difficult for Jesus to walk on water as it was for him to turn water into wine or to feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. A lot of commentators I've read have difficulty with this miracle for some reason. And they argue that Jesus was walking near the water, that he was walking on the shoreline or that he was walking in shallow water. And that's why John is very clear to indicate that they are three and a half miles out From shore, these are experienced fishermen. Trust me, they were not fighting against the oars in two feet of water. It was three and a half miles of water on which Jesus walked to get into the boat of terrified disciples. It's kind of funny too. I I just realized this. If you like humor in the Bible, verses 22 and 23, the people who are on shore saw that one boat had left and Jesus was not on it. And yet suddenly here he is with the disciples. It kind of strikes me as funny. The people who remained on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat there, that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. And all of a sudden Jesus is on the other shore with them. Can you imagine what those people were thinking? How did Jesus go from here to there when there was only one boat who left and Jesus wasn't on it? John included that, I think, with a smile on his face. In Matthew's account of this 
miracle. Peter is the one who asked Jesus if he can come to him on the water. And Jesus invited him to do so. And Peter steps out of the boat and walks on the water until he takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks down and panics and begins to sink. And the disciples see Jesus coming to them on the water. And that only frightened them even more because they believed they were dying. And the only thing that could explain Jesus coming to them was a ghost. Maybe he was coming to, because they were almost dead. But Jesus identifies himself and calms them down. It says here in the English, it is I, do not be afraid. That's a bad translation of the Greek. The Greek actually says, ego I me. Ego is a pronoun for I. I me is a verb. First person, singular, I am. So the translation should be, I am, do not be afraid. What, does, what do the disciples think of when they hear I am? Don't you think they would recall the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush? Exodus 3.14. Moses says, God, whom shall I say sent me? What is your name? And God said, You tell them, I am sent you. I am the name for God. Jesus walking on the water, I am. Do not be afraid. And immediately the disciples would associate that with the name for God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? I am was walking on the water toward them. Well, Jesus gets them safely through the storm. It doesn't say here in John's gospel that the storm subsided. What it does say is an even greater miracle that suddenly the boat was at the land to which they were going. How did that happen? Matthew says when he got into the boat, the wind ceased. Here it says they simply immediately were transported. I guess the remaining six and a half miles of the ten miles to where they were going. In other words, with Jesus beside them, they ended up on the distant shore and God's purpose for them was fulfilled. Storms may come in your life, but they will never ultimately thwart God's purpose for you. Did you hear me? Storms will come, but God's purpose will still be fulfilled through them. See, the disciples got to where Jesus sent them. It took a miracle. But God did it. God will use the storms to strengthen your character, to build your faith, and to prepare you for those purposes that he's sending you toward. So what can we learn from this fifth sign in John's gospel? You remember a sign differs from a miracle and that the focus is not on the event but upon the one performing it. Jesus Christ, who over and over again proves who he is. So this sign shows us that we will face all kinds of storms in life. And a lot of you are in those storms right now. It might be a major storm. It might be a small one preparing you for a major one. And they come suddenly and unexpectedly and without preparation. And they trigger fear in our hearts. And they leave us utterly hopeless with nowhere to turn and helpless Unless we are walking in complete dependence upon the Lord. 
I grew up listening to gospel music. And uh, one of my favorite, and a lot of you here will know it, called the Anchor Holes. I have journeyed through the long dark night out on the open sea. By faith alone, sight unknown, and yet his eyes were watching me. That must come from this passage. The anchor holes, though the ship is battered. The anchor holes, though the sails are torn. I have fallen on my knees as I faced the raging seas. The anchor holes, in spite of the storm. I have been young, but I am older now, and there has been beauty in these eyes have seen. But it was in the night, through the storms of my life. Oh, that's where God proved his love to me. So the trials of life do not have to overwhelm us. If you are a Christian, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then in addition to all these things, you have the promise of Romans 8.28 that says, We know that in everything God works together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And the next verse tells us that God is in the business of conforming us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ doesn't happen when you're lying in a bed of roses. It happens when you're going through storms and learn to trust God. And depend on him. No matter what. What shall we say to this? It says in the next verse in Romans 8. If God is for us. Who can be against us? Because storms will come. But I am. Is with us always. Even to the end of the age. Shall we pray? Father, there's some folks here this morning who are facing raging storms right now. They may be small, they may be great. But I just thank you that we don't have to go through them alone. And that you've been preparing each of us for that time in our lives when these storms arise. And you're not going to desert us. But you're going to be with us. You're going to come out and climb in the boat and sit right there beside us through the worst of it. And if we just have faith to hang on, that anchor will hold firm through the storms of life. And we will suddenly find ourselves on the other side where you were taking us all along and teaching us through the process to trust in the great I am who's always with us. Father, I pray for those who are hurting, who are in storms today, tomorrow, this coming week, this coming year. Prepare all of us now for what we will face sooner or later so that when that hour of testing comes we'll be strong enough to persevere to hold on 
let you carry us through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe you were at the concert last night and you made a decision or in the service this morning and you professed your faith or you rededicated your life or you desire to join this church. Now is the time to make that decision public and I'll be at the front to receive you.